what I love about what you said and what I think is so true is that what's really amazing about teaching musical theater is that it's made up of all these different parts and it has music and it has lyric and and it has orchestration and it depending on the show it might have spoken word and it has staging and casting and costumes and lights and set and design and all the marketing stuff around it and all the economic issues and the biography of all the creators so there's so many different ways that you can come into studying a musical and i just think my preference i'm very interested in in musicals in their cultural moment but that's only one of an infinite number of ways to approach the show which is why it's actually so cool to hear about how you how you're teaching as well now is that a broadway musical teaser or what okay before i introduce stacy wolf and you get to hear all of these broadway musical scholarly analyses from stacy wolf i want to remind you all we have an in-person Halloween party on October 29th. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room presents with pen and brush our artistic collaborator, our Halloween literature bash happening on October 29th from 7 to 10 p.m. We are going to have food, drinks, book giveaways. We're going to be playing some literary games. Um, we're going to play some trivia games. Um, giving away signed book copies from authors here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Um, we're giving away Ivory Tower Boiler Room merchandise. Uh, there's going to be a Halloween selfie wall to take pictures with you in your costume. Dress up as your favorite literary character, literary author, anything literature, universe inspired. I'm going back to ancient Greece with my costume. Uh, so... Go to ivorytowerboilerroom.com to get your tickets. They are $20 and you get your food, your drinks, all the games. You're going to come. You're going to definitely go home with a giveaway. That's to be certain. So can't wait to see you all there. I'll be joined with Mary and Kim and some of our interns will be there. So see you all in Manhattan on October 29th. It's at Pen and Brush um, in Chelsea, Manhattan. So it's going to be a Halloween artsy party. Okay, and then if you haven't yet, please follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. You're going to see all of our video teasers. We have a lot of steamy pictures uh, from our not safe for work discussions. You know, we I get into some really steamy erotic discussions with our authors here and artists. However, I have to say this Broadway musical episode is definitely... Um, a safe for work episode. I'll put it that way. Um, and I thought, why not start with some music? Why not start with some dream girls? Because that is my favorite musical. Here is the queen, Miss Cheryl Lee Ralph, who just won the Emmy for Abbott Elementary singing dream girls. Dreams just about to come true. Life's not as bad as it may seem if you open your eyes to what's in front of you. Your dream girls, boys, make you happy. Yeah. 
Hi, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited with today's discussion because not only do I get to interview Dr. Stacy Wolf, who she said I can call her Stacy now, um, who is America's foremost scholar on musical theater. Not only is she the professor of theater at Princeton, she also has written books that I cherish. I first got to know Stacy when I was at my local Long Island library, and I had her book Changed for Good in my hands, A Feminist History of the Broadway Musical. I know we'll talk about it, but when you have Wicked on the cover of a book, uh, it's going to be an exciting read. And then <laughs> uh, Stacy actually just came out, well, 2020, I'm going to consider it just came out because of the pandemic, uh, <laughs> but just had her book published Beyond Broadway, The Pleasure and Promise of Musical Theater Across America, um, that we're really going to deep dive and dig into. Also, I have to uh, talk about some of her recent publications. They're exciting titles like The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music, Musical Theater at Girls Jewish Summer Camps in Maine, USA. Also, The Feminine Mystique Goes to Broadway, Housewives in 1960s Musical Theater. One of my favorites because of the line that she chooses from Mame. Her essay will always be Bosom Buddies, Female Duets, and the Queering of Broadway Musical Theater that was actually published by Gay and Lesbian Quarterly in 2006. So, Stacy, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited that you are here with me. Thank you, Andrew. It's so wonderful to be with you. And I'm a huge fan of this podcast and really thrilled to be on it this time. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, just the range of me reading what you've published. And I think, Stacy and I, I'll give you the behind the scenes. We've been having a really exciting conversation before I hit record. <laughs> we have, it's yes. true. <laughs> yes, we, we're Broadway enthusiasts. And um, I was talking about the literature and Broadway musical course that I taught. And hopefully some of you out there are my students. So hi to the students. Um, and even with your teaching, it seems like you must bring so many different Broadway genres or even critical lenses of how to teach the Broadway musical. So do you feel that your publishing and your teaching um, sides come together in a certain way? Yes, absolutely. I feel, well, first of all, I feel probably the same way you feel that I'm so lucky and fortunate that I get to teach musical theater. Because I think in a lot of universities, it's not considered a serious subject. I think the way you've taught it in conversation with the source material is super interesting. And when I teach musical theater, it's always in conversation with U.S. history and culture. It's always both reflecting and shaping U.S. history and culture. The seminar that I teach every other year on Sondheim's musicals actually lives in uh, our American Studies, um, the Efron Center for the Study of America. So the, our American Studies program and that class is explicitly about Sondheim's musicals in conversation with the moment of their creation and then future revivals of those shows and how they're in conversation with that moment. So um, I think just being able to teach musical theater as a serious, historical, cultural, literary-based, multidisciplinary art and entertainment form is so amazing. Um, I feel so lucky that I get to do that. And absolutely, all of my teaching is in conversation with my own work and changed for good 
came about because I wanted a book for my students. I wanted something that they could read that would take us through the history of the musical from a feminist perspective. I think there are many different ways that the history of the uh, feminist history of the Broadway musical could be written. And I think that that's what so many academics are doing now. So I kind of laid the groundwork with this book. And then now there are many, many other ways, many angles, many different methods, many different approaches to take to thinking about musical from a feminist. And I would say for my work, always feminist and queer um, go hand in hand. So when I wrote that book, it was very much developed as I was teaching these shows and thinking about these shows and trying to make sense of these shows and thinking about um, different musicals in different decades. And that continues. Um, all the work that I've done, all the everything that I've published about Hamilton came out of teaching Hamilton, or I would be, be thinking about Hamilton and then send it back to my students and hear what they had to say about it. And even um, this summer, I was teaching a summer school class for a few weeks, and we did Beauty and the Beast, which I had never actually... I. I think I actually maybe had never even seen it um, or certainly never taught it or studied it. And so I really got to dig into that musical with my students and they were so smart about it. And we spent, um, we watched actually a pretty good bootleg community theater production of it and talked about it. And it was really amazing. And I, um, so yes, that's a, kind of a very long answer to the teaching and the scholarship is always in conversation with each other. And I think I'll just say one more thing about this. In terms of Beyond Broadway, I was very much motivated to write Beyond Broadway because I wanted to tell the stories of my own and my students' experiences growing up doing musical theater, not in New York or not in relationship to the professional Broadway musical scene. And very, very early in my research for Beyond Broadway, I remember having dinner with a bunch of Princeton students, maybe 15 or 20 of them sitting around a table. And I just said to them, okay, how did you come to do musical theater? And they were talking about summer camps and they were talking about shows that they did when they were in third grade. And they were talking about um, going to see a local show. And very few of them were New Yorkers. Very few of them had seen a Broadway musical until they got to Princeton and Princeton took them to New York to see something. So I wanted to, so in that way, that wasn't a formal teaching situation, but that was just being in a room with young people and wanting to share their stories, which I'm sure, I mean, you must feel this all the time in the classroom that the things you learn from your students, you want to share and learn more about. And that's just why it's so great to be a teacher, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, there's so much you offered there, Stacey. I first can't believe that you get to do a sound time course. That's exciting. That's actually, if I, like the literature in Broadway musical, there's literally, this is what I love is how much it speaks to culture. And I love that you're approaching this from the cultural historical perspective. Um, even uh. like that you have that publication about housewives and the 1960s and, um, you could just do a whole course on that with genre and you could do a course on the horror musical or um, that sound time gives you so much. So I'm just curious when you do approach sound time, do you tend to focus on 
like just one of his specific genres or do you try to incorporate incorporate a lot of the sound time like it doesn't matter if it's an into the woods a sweeney todd a follies right yes we do a different show every week and think about that musical in conversation with that moment so when we study company we think we look at publications that were publications that were in the media in the late 60s about marriage and about bachelorhood and about gender and think about and about New York City and what was going on in New York City in the late 60s. So we're always thinking about what was happening at the time and not to say that there's not a direct cause and effect relationship between context and artwork. There's an incredibly complicated indecipherable, beautiful relationship between context and artwork. But certainly context and artwork are always in conversation. And Sondheim was of his time. And George Firth writing company in the in the late 60s, I mean, around, you know, in 69, 70 was of his time. So we're always thinking about that aspect of it. And that's only one way to approach it. I think I have a lot of friends and colleagues who teach courses on Sondheim and they're much more focused on, say, the music and a musicological perspective and how exactly is the music put together. And we talk about music in my class and we approach it musicologically, but our stress is much more in terms of how it resonates with issues of the time in terms of gender and class and race and sexuality. And also always thinking about how do you do it now? So yes, we would think about company in 1970 and also the Marianne Elliott revival of company and what that says in our contemporary moment and what, how this story and how these characters can resonate in different ways in the 21st century with a female body, Bobby, and so on. So mm-hmm. I think um, what I love about what you said and what I think is so true is that what's really amazing about teaching musical theater is that it's made up of all these different parts and it has music and it has lyric and and it has orchestration and it depending on the show it might have spoken word and it has staging and casting and costumes and lights and set and design and all the marketing stuff around it and all the economic issues and the biography of all the creators so there's so many different ways that you can come into studying a musical and i just think my preference i'm very interested in in musicals in their cultural moment but that's only one of an infinite number of ways to approach the show which is why it's actually so cool to hear about how you how you're teaching as well well also I took my parents to see the Marianne Elliott company we saw it right before it closed not right before but we saw like two months before it closed the staging was incredible first of all I'm a huge set design kind of concept conceptual person in the audience when that curtain came up on the orchestra, I was excited. I love seeing the orchestra. I think more musicals need to have the orchestra. I just saw Into the Woods. Loved that the orchestra was on the stage. Um, I still am surprised that Phantom doesn't have the orchestra on stage, except in the concert version, which I prefer better than when I see it on Broadway. Um, but so you saw, I'm assuming, the company revival. I did. Okay. I I didn't see it in uh, the States. I saw it in, in London. Um, I think, no, I just wanted to say one thing that I think is so interesting about you saying that you don't see the orchestra in Phantom. I think that that is partly due to 
the theatrical conventions of the late 1980s when that musical opened, mm. which were all about this huge machinery and fancy technical effects and chandeliers coming down and helicopters coming down in Miss Saigon and the big turntable and Les Mis and all the things that were, and Cats um, and Evita and those music, those uh, late, well, Evita was earlier, but these late 80s mega musicals. And I think that was so much of a moment where the orchestra, well, first of all, the the orchestra's playing, the orchestra played through. So it was, once the show started, the orchestra was going and did not stop. Um, but it was a moment where, audiences or at least the producers believe that audiences were not so interested in seeing the labor of the musicians they were much more interested in seeing this very cool machinery and spectacular effects and lightning and thunder and all kinds of you know water and fog and that that was much more interesting scenographically than the moment we're in where i think since certainly since john doyle invented actor musicianship and with more and more shows, I mean, I'm thinking of Come From Away, where the um, players are on the stage and the band's visit, where a lot of the players are also the actors. And um, with Encores, what you were saying about the Into the Woods, that Encores is a series that's created to honor the music of the musicals. So for Encores Productions, the orchestra is always on the stage and always visible. And it's great that when this production went to Broadway or is going to Broadway, it is on Broadway. Wait, Broadway. it's on Broadway yeah, now. Yeah, right. Yeah. It, it, right. It just got extended. Um, that they would that they would keep that, that they would honor how that production was created and that you need to see the orchestra. So I think um, I love that you say that because I do think that audiences now we want to see the musicians. We yeah. want to see the players. That makes um, although, sense. Like Chicago yeah. was the yeah. revival was from Encores. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Where you see the musicians. Yeah, and it's been yeah. going since the nineties. Forever. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Yeah, that's a show where it works, in my opinion. Well, we can. You brought up uh, the machinery and talk about something that's the complete antithesis, in my opinion, is a Chicago where it's the choreography, it's the acting, it's a true triple threat musical. And I feel that it's something I'm drawn to because I love dance musicals. I love um, Chorus Line, um, even Kiss Me Kate, I guess you could call in certain sections. Guys and Dolls was a big dance musical. Um, and I'm kind of waiting for that return. I'm like, okay, what's the next, you know, triple threat musical? Yeah. Would you consider Hamilton a big dance musical? Huh, that's an interesting question. There's a um, lot of dance in Hamilton. Yeah, I guess so. I, I think when I'm, see, I'm so nostalgic for big <laughs> choreographed um, like razzle-dazzle numbers. So I guess yeah. in the traditional chorus line sense, no, but in the, you're right, in the movement, yes, definitely. There's a lot of specific gestures and specific um parts that each character has to hit when they're i guess six in a way too could kind of yeah. has done a lot of movement choreography yeah there's a lot of dance in six yeah but i, I but you're right that they're not kind of set choreographic experiences the way really every dance is in a chorus line 
because it's a, because Chorus Line is a book musical. So when the songs happen, they happen in a much more contained way and the dance explodes and it does its thing and then it goes away um, for people to talk just like in Chicago or in Guys and Dolls or these other yeah. shows. Yeah. Well, not because I want you to hit every, uh, <laughs> every hot button issue because I know when I bring up Funny Girl, there's a lot going on. But um, to talk about a book musical, very traditional book musical um amazing overture i mean i amazing still, overture. amazing i saw the revival with beanie feldstein i actually am about to get tickets for leah michelle uh-huh. um i was saddened that the orchestra is not on the stage even in the overture because i saw gypsy which again thank you stacy see this is why stacy is the foremost musical theater scholar <laughs> because Gypsy, the revival with Patti Lapone was also encore. So now that makes sense to me why they brought the orchestra out at the beginning and then they brought them to the back and put the curtain down in front of them. So like it can be done to have the orchestra sure. at the beginning for the overture and then hide them. So I was kind of surprised Funny Girl didn't show the orchestra. The orchestra is in, in the pit for Funny Girl, mm-hmm. right? I mean, kind of in a traditional orchestra pit. Yeah, they're in a traditional orchestra pit, which... Yeah, well, at least they're not down the street in a room somewhere. That's true. Wait, is that actually happening? Oh, yeah. I'm Ooh. Now, I'm trying to think specifically, but there, there are a number of musicals where, especially with small orchestras, small pits, where they are in a different room, they're in a basement, they're down the street, and the actors just see them on the on the television screen, um, uh, you know, where the, where the television screens are set on the mezzanine level. Yeah. I mean, some, I think, I feel now that even if the orchestra is in the pit and you can see the hands of the conductor, that feels like a luxury to me. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I'm now getting flashbacks to seeing the conductor. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so for those who, you know, aren't like Stacy, who's involved in so much musical theater knowledge, or if you've never been, I think, privileged to have a live orchestra as a actor. Um, I remember I was in All Shook Up. Uh, shout out to the Broadway Pittman Theater in Pittman, New Jersey, a very nice community theater, which Stacy goes through a lot of community theaters and beyond Broadway, which are so important. I agree, are the heartbeat. We'll get into all that. But you're right. The conductor, even if they're on the stage, usually there's a little video projection or a monitor, video monitor. A monitor. Yeah. Monitor. And you can see the conductor and like you're kind of trained to look for it once in a while, depending on the number. Um, but I absolutely, there's just something about having a live orchestra. It's so true. I've always loved a live orchestra. Yes. When it's canned or just they're playing the CD, the soundtrack. It's, it's not the same. It, yeah. It's it's definitely not the same. And I think. Okay. Hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first a word from our sponsor. The ivory tower boiler room is so happy to welcome Broadview press as our official sponsor 
Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history. They always publish with an eye towards diversity, so there is a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and other authors from marginalized groups. In the summer of 2022, they launched their new Broadview anthology of American literature, which increases diversity in the classroom because it rethinks the American canon and breathes new life into the American literary survey. It's actually been called, quote, the new gold standard in the field. I love using Broadview Press text in my own classroom at Stony Brook University. I can't wait to use the new anthology of American literature when I have the opportunity. And for all of you out there, Broadview Press has given us the official code, Ivory Tower, for 20% off site-wide on broadviewpress.com. Again, that is code Ivory Tower for 20% off. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just, um, I know we've, I know we actually have been talking all about Broadway shows, but I think one of the things that I really loved when I was researching um, beyond Broadway, which is, as you say, about community theaters and high school musicals and summer camp shows, was visiting high schools and watching those orchestras rehearse. And they were often kids who were also in the marching band and really incredible musicians and I just loved seeing these kids who were in the marching band and kind of brought all this like football enthusiasm or <laughs> participating in the sports event in the fall to participating in the musical in the spring and I loved watching them rehearse and one of the things that I write about in the book is how at some of the schools I visited because the orchestra in the pit was the uh, marching band, they often did not have strings. They had brass, they had woodwinds, they had percussion because these are the marchers. And so they would, the teacher would actually rent from MTI a track with strings. And so they would play the track on the computer, from the computer into the sound system. And then the students who were the musicians would play their live part on the oboe or the clarinet or the trumpet or the trombone uh, or percussion. So you would have a combination at the show of this taped professional orchestra for some of the tracks and then the live students playing. And I think that one of the things that was really fascinating to me in my research was to learn about the industry of enabling musical theater production and the ways that Music Theater International, which is the biggest licensor of musicals, all the different kinds of products they create to enable production in, say, a high school in the Midwest that has a phenomenal marching band but does not have a string program. Mm -hmm. And so I think some, to me, it's very interesting because 
some might say, well, you don't have, you don't have a string program, so you can't play live. You're going to have to get the tape, but they've made it to accommodate what a school may or may not have. And obviously it would be very, I mean, it's not impossible to play a score of a musical with no strings, but it sounds better if there's, it sounds better if you have a cello and a violin. Um, so I, I think that's the licensors, which are play a big role in my book, are fascinating to me because they are a for-profit industry that at once makes a lot of money from all these amateur shows mm -hmm. and enables these amateur amateur shows partly through the licensing that is you cannot do a musical without licensing it um hence the recent debacle with hamilton oh yes yes please speak about that oh my goodness do not do that um, for so many reasons, but so you have to get permission from the licensors and they also enable, enable production in so many different contexts on every imaginable different scale and in so many different ways. So it's a really fascinating industry that I think a lot of people don't pay attention to, don't really know how the licensing industry works mm -hmm. and just think of them as the people who say yes or no, or mm -hmm. how you get your scripts or the, whatever it is that they're doing for you. Um, but it's a fascinating part of the industry and the whole ecosystem of musical theater, both professional and non-professional. Yeah, and I love how you walk us through that in Beyond Broadway in your intro, especially Stacey has this whole moment of talking about Disney theatrical and the profit behind the licensing, which is just really bringing us behind the curtain and how it became this whole mode for Disney to approve community theaters to put on their productions, that it helps Disney with their branding and the marketing and keeping, say, Beauty and the Beast alive in the press and the Little Mermaid. And it makes so much sense that um, they want, outside of the New York City metro area, they want these musicals to be getting airtime, to be played by all different levels, whether, like you're saying, it's high schools or even middle schools, right? And then there's um, student editions of certain musicals. Um, like there's the student Greece. I mean, I remember like we had the Greece student edition for my middle school when I was Kaniki. And there's certain lines, <laughs> there's certain words you can't say. And um, that's right. But, right. Also, I know Rogers and Hammerstein um, is very notorious for being one of the, um, Maybe not strictest, but you can't you can't do anything with editing. Like you cannot touch the script. It's pretty locked in with Rogers and Hammerstein. Is that correct, Stacey? Well, I think for all licensors, it's they're pretty locked in, as they should be, because mm -hmm. it's intellectual property. And mm -hmm. I think even though when we are working on a show it feels entirely new to us. When we're doing The Sound of Music, we feel like no one has ever done The Sound of Music before. Or when you're playing Kaniki, you feel like no one has ever done this before until you. You are creating the role. It is wholly original. But there's a long history of these shows. And most importantly, composers and lyricists and librettists created the shows. So it's very important to do the product, which is what it is, 
that was originally created. I think that Rodgers and Hammerstein got a reputation for being really strict because Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals were so popular for many, many years. And I think it's more over the years that there are so many more musicals to do, so many more contemporary musicals to do that I think all of the licensors are are quite strict about about their product. When you were referring to the school editions, um, one of the things that I write about in the book that was also absolutely fascinating for me to learn was the history of the juniors, the history of the Broadway junior series that started in 1996 with our friend Stephen Sondheim, uh, may he rest in peace, and Arthur Lawrence, may he rest in peace, who wrote the libretto for Gypsy and for West Side Story, um, as well as other plays. He, um, they were worried about the future of musical theater in the mid 90s. And they went to the offices of MTI and visited with Freddie Gershon, who was then the president of MTI. And um, he had been a music producer for many years and was is completely visionary, brilliant man. And they were worried about what's happening to the repertoire and why aren't people doing our shows anymore. And part of it but in the mid 90s was that their shows were two and a half hours and a lot of them were very wordy and a lot of them were very difficult. There were a lot of reasons that people might've been challenged by doing Sweeney Todd in the mid nineties um, or high schools wouldn't want to do it. Although I guess maybe everyone always wants to do Sweeney Todd. That's not a good example. Um, but anyway, Gershon had the idea to create one hour versions of their musicals. Wow. And he said, let's start with Into the Woods because the act Act One stands alone. And that launched this entire industry, which now accounts for a healthy percentage of the licensors' profits, the mm. school shows, the school editions. And after MTI developed a number of these um, Broadway junior shows, then Disney, around the same time, a little bit after, Disney, who creates their own junior shows, started creating these kids' editions that were even shorter. And then Rodgers and Hammerstein and all the other licensors also created school editions or junior editions. And so now all of them have these shorter versions. Or like you said, you know, the swear words are cut out or the sexuality is toned down a little bit. Um, and they're adapted to be the songs are shorter, the keys are transposed. And um, they're they're cut to work for for kids and for and to work in a school day. So that's another really fascinating part of the industry that I think people who've grown up on the juniors, like your age and younger, never knew a time when the only musical that you could license would be the two and a half hour version of The Sound of Music. Yeah, yeah. Um, or whatever the two and a half hour version of Greece, and so that's another really important part again of this eco i use the word ecosystem of amateur musical theater um really important player the these junior shows yeah well and i think what's so interesting too is i'm kind of curious especially since i'm from new jersey and i remember even being in south jersey there's um mti would they have the mile radius of something. If something is on Broadway, you know, and you are within the 100 mile radius. All I know is it was usually the cutoff was like where I lived. So we weren't able to do whatever was currently on Broadway. Do you feel that there's, 
more or less pressure if you're, say, in the New York City metro area and you're a community theater, a high school, um, that there's more pressure because of that Broadway locus than there is, say, in a Texas or California even because you're separated from Broadway? Like, if basically families can get to Broadway easier, do you think that their communities there's more pressure on what their theater system looks like? Wow, that's a great question. I'm not sure because I think that every community, even where I I live, 60 miles from New York City, <laughs> I feel that the community theaters in this region and the community theater that I wrote about specifically in Beyond Broadway, which is a community theater that lives at, um, that's housed or performs at Mercer County Community College, so very close to where I live. That theater and the many, many community theaters in this region thrive as their own, I'll use the word again, as their own ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And they're always in conversation with Broadway because that's where the repertoire comes from. As you say, that's where the repertoire originates. If you're gonna do Guys and Dolls, it started on Broadway in 1950. But I feel that, that there's so much life and energy in, within a community that, it, that that community could still be relatively close to New York City and still be its own thing. Um, yes, many of the audiences who come and see shows at the Kelsey Theater that I wrote about or see high school musicals in my region can get, go to New York and can get to New York. But that's an entirely different experience. Are they more sophisticated theater goers? Maybe. Um, are they more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable theaters, theater goers? Maybe. But there are also regional theaters across the country. There are touring houses across the country. You can live in, in across the country and still see a production of the touring company of Fun Home, the touring company of Hamilton, the touring company of Legally Blonde. Um, and I, I think that... I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe I. My perspective is too East Coast, New York, um, theater saturated. But I feel that there. I mean, in my travels, I was all over the country, and everywhere I went, there was a vibrant theater scene. And also because of YouTube and the internet, there's so much that you can access, even if you don't physically make it to Broadway, legal or not. You want to see a show not in real life, you can see it on YouTube. You will find it on YouTube. You can see anything you want. So I also feel like the knowledge of the repertoire is so much more expansive than when I was a kid and all there was was a cast album. And you would try to figure out what a show was based on the cast album and the pictures inside of the LP. And that was all you had. Now, it doesn't matter where you live. You can see a production of fill in the blank because you will, because someone has, illegally turned on their phone in the theater and captured it for you. So um, I think that I think that you can definitely see see things. Um, I did want to say something about the question of being within the radius of forbidden productions, mm -hmm. because this is definitely one of the things that in, as much as I admire and respect the licensors, um, this is something that I that infuriates me. I do not understand why a Broadway revival of into the Greece woods. of right. into the woods, right. Of into the woods should in any way impinge on a high school doing into the woods 
in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Yeah. To me, that is ludicrous. It is to me if there if a high school does into the woods, it's going to make more people want to go see that Broadway production, mm-hmm. not fewer. People will see it in their in the high school and want to go see it. I do not understand at all the rationale behind these rules. And uh, at some point, I will have to investigate it further. It's de- it's definitely on my list of research projects that I need to follow up. It wasn't front of mind when I was um, working on Beyond Broad- Broadway, but it is something that I don't understand. And I feel, considering how sensitive and aware and thoughtful the licensors are, I really do not understand the economic reasons for that. There probably is one that I just have that I don't know about, and I look forward to learning about it. But right now, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think something that really comes through when all of you out there listen to Beyond Broadway, read Beyond Broadway, basically get your hands on Stacey's Beyond Broadway um, and Changed for Good, but especially in Beyond Broadway, I love you have this whole moment about how parents siblings, um, your neighbors, who would never be theater goers traditional, or you don't think of them as the Broadway enthusiast. Um, But say even where I am on Long Island, they see that Susie, their daughter, is going to be in Little Shop of Horrors. They're going to go support her. And I saw this all the time growing up in um, summer theater. There's a theater called Main Stage that does summer theater. Shout out to them. They're amazing in South Jersey. Um, but just to see all the families come support their children. And a lot of them are probably not going to go to Broadway. And that wouldn't be their first experience as Broadway. Um, it's cost. We know how costly it can be. Um, but to pay $5 and see their child, I love those moments. So, like, can you talk about that, Stacey? Because I feel you really bring up so much of those first-time theater goers and mm. why it matters that they know those people in their community theaters or summer theater. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, I also, I love all the examples that you're bringing up because it's it's introducing me to more, to more theaters uh, that aren't that far from me. So it's great. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that local musical, local and amateur musical theater feeds Broadway mm-hmm. because it creates all of the artists who work on Broadway it creates all of the audiences who go to see shows on Broadway. And as we've been discussing, it supports the licensors. And I also argue that local musical theater supports the local and feeds a local community, not only because the arts are good for us, but because exactly as you say, people show up to watch their neighbors, their friends' kids, their kids' parents, and everyone else work on the show. And one of the things that I witnessed witnessed frequently from the participation side um, when I was hanging out at community theaters, and this wasn't just in New Jersey, this was pretty much everywhere I went, is that someone would be at a rehearsal just waiting for someone to finish. So you go and your kid is in a show and you're just waiting for the kid to finish rehearsal and someone says to you, oh, could you go and pick up this prop or could you go and move this there or something? And before you know it, you're designing a set or building a set or designing lights or calling a show or doing something like that. And I found that very moving how people would get involved in, especially community theater, just kind of standing around or being there. Another thing that I found very moving, particularly about community theater, was the intergenerational aspect of it. 
and being in a space and being at many, many rehearsals where there were children and adults working on shows together and like little kids and elderly senior citizens working on a show together. And that's really amazing. We don't see that very often in our culture where young, someone very young and someone older are working on a project together and moving in the same direction. So I, I loved that too. And I do, I think you're exactly right. I mean, Broadway is ridiculously expensive and even seeing a touring company production. I mean, if it, if a show comes to a big touring house, the tickets are still going to be quite, quite expensive, but I think to get exposed to the repertoire and have the enjoyment of seeing a musical and seeing the child of someone, you know, or the parent of someone, you know, or your neighbor uh, or your neighbor who you didn't even know who was involved in theater in a show is really great. Yeah. I love those stories when like you learn that your volunteer firefighter is playing, um, I don't know, is in guys and dolls and, um, you know, he's nicely, nicely, for example. And it's, I love that energy. I love when I was in theater. I mean, I always knew I had this passion and I kept up at lessons and doing all dance lessons and knew that I really wanted to eventually springboard into something. But it was also wonderful to be with fellow high schoolers who were on the football team or on the cheerleading team. And yeah. It, it was enriching their lives. I think that's the power of theater. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And now a message from the Gay and Lesbian Review. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Hemmert, the publisher of the GNLR, here with a special offer just for you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the GNLR, let me provide a little background. The GLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features such as artists' profiles and the popular art memo column. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. For example, the theme of the current issue is Queens and Kings, and it features an article by Andrew Holleran about Truman Capote's relationships with glamorous women, the woman he called his swans. Now for the special offer. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven issues instead of six. Visit GLReview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. Click subscribe and enter promo code I-T-B-R for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archive issues of the magazine. One of the things that surprised me when I started talking to people at um, the theaters I visited, because part of a lot of the book, as you said, is about my observing auditions, board meetings, rehearsals, and performances. So a lot of it is my own participant observation of what was going on. And a lot of the book are, is interviews that I did with people. I did hundreds of interviews with people and got their stories and heard their experiences of working on these shows or being in the audience. And when I was at 
when I visited community theaters and talked to people, I assumed before I got there that everyone working on a show would either be on their way up or their way down. So they would either be a young person who aspired to get to Broadway or someone who had been a professional artist of some kind and maybe was raising a family or wasn't successful on Broadway or kind of was coming down. And that was not true at all. Very rarely would I meet someone who was on their way up or their way down. Everyone I met at some point had done theater or sometimes had never done theater, didn't start doing theater until they started doing community theater. And they had, they were accountants and they were doctors and they were firefighters and they were stay at home parents and they were teachers and they were students. And one of the uh, scholars that I quote in the book is a sociologist named Robert Stebbins. And he coined this idea of serious leisure. And he talks about how there are people who engage, he does not write about theater, but um, because very few sociologists write about theater, but he talks about how people engage in leisure, leisure activities with, with such utter seriousness that we can't really call it leisure. We have to call it something else. It's work, but it's work that people enjoy. It's work that people choose to do. And that notion really helped me to understand what happens at a community theater because people go to work all day or they go to school or they're home with their kids or they're doing whatever they're doing. And then at night and on the weekends, they go to the theater and they work. They labor, they're putting their bodies and souls and hearts and spirits into making a show. And often it's pleasurable and sometimes it's frustrating and it's hard and it's tiring, but it, it is still considered a leisure activity, a hobby, um, but they do it with complete and total seriousness. And I thought that was a really helpful concept to think about how community theater operates and why it's so important. Yeah, and the summer theater actually Mary, who does the True Crime and Academia series here, we knew each other. We grew up together since kindergarten at the Summer Theater main stage. And main stage's whole purpose is to enrich, to empower. I mean, the different um, children who are part of this camp, who don't all live in the same socioeconomic community. The, you know, they... Um, have different religions and races and that is so important to me is what a summer theater that it's not just about I mean yes some of us a few of us really wanted we saw ourselves in theater for the long term but so many now I know have all different professions and we keep in touch and they found a voice and I think to me that's so important and that comes through in everything you write in Beyond Broadway is just seeing how each of these communities are all just trying to empower uh, that community. And it's it's groundbreaking. You, the work you do, Stacey, really is groundbreaking because I think it makes so much sense and we all see it, but to actually have it written down and to have these anecdotes and experiences preserved is so important. So thank you, know, you. Thank you for thank doing you. that. <laughs> Thank you yes. so thank you so much for saying that, Andrew. And also thank you for uh, sharing the observation about kids from all different backgrounds coming together because I absolutely do think that theater is such a rare and amazing place for people of different races, ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, genders, sexualities, and everything to come together and make a show. And 
Um, I think, and what you say about the purpose of this theater to empower, absolutely, it it is to empower. And I, yeah, I you just said it so beautifully. So well, thank you. <laughs> well, I've been reading your work too, so there's some, you know, there's some words in my mind. Um, so I know we're almost out of time, but if you will, for just you know few more minutes. I'm not going to hold you long, but if I can just get your hot takes, not like I'm putting you under <laughs> literally in the boiler room, but if I can just get a few of the questions that I know as scholars, we don't always like to answer, but I am sure there is a musical that if you had any musical, which musical would you just constantly put on replay? Well, that is a very hard question. And it's always, I I almost always feel that it's the musical that I'm teaching or the musical that I'm writing about or, um, and I and I think I, I think I have fairly eclectic taste. So I would have to say right now, it would be Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella oh, because I'm co-writing an article about it and they're, Re, they're replaying the 1997 Brandy Whitney Houston oh. version on August 23rd, uh, which I can't wait for. And they're going to have different um, some of the creators and performers talking about it. But that's it is such a beautiful score. And it's also a really interesting show because it's the only show that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote for television. And it had three different versions in the 50s, the 60s and the 90s. And then it didn't it actually did not go to Broadway until 2013 with a, yet another production that was um, a beautiful revival. But it it's just it's just a gorgeous score that somehow keeps giving. Um, I feel like the, the Cinderella Waltz is one of the most beautiful pieces of music Richard Rogers ever wrote and somehow this story that you would think would be completely anti-feminist and it is kind of the basis for the most horrifying passive inducing stereotypes of women also is about the imagination and kind of about a girl who gets herself out of a bad situation and about women who bond to empower each other. So there are definitely some hidden feminist messages in there that my co-writer and I are trying to mine. But I would say right now I'm way about Cinderella. What would you say is yours? I mean, I wouldn't say always all for always and all time, but for now it's Cinderella. Yeah, I would say if I had to like constantly listen um, or the one I turn to the most, I would say Dreamgirls. There's something about Dreamgirls. Love Dreamgirls. Yes. And for like the music, Caliday, I just love how well um, they got the genre of the Motown sound into the solo singer with uh, Dina. And then um, this whole Diana Ross kind of, you know, bio that they're trying to do without uh, infringing on copyright. Um, yeah. So I think Dreamgirls to me is like the one that I love to listen to the sound um but a chorus line i will always turn back to fiddler on the roof yes. I mean, yeah, oh gosh so i love these shows yes i know so but, um and now which show i don't want to say that you would throw it away forever but we would put it far back on the stage and like you know you would let it gather some dust maybe dust it off once in a while but you're not really you're not that keen on talking about a lot. Well, I, I, 
I we kind of started by talking about a show that I that I did not know until I taught the summer, and that was Beauty and the Beast. And I have to say, I find I find it fairly irredeemable. Um, my students ripped it to shreds. Uh, they had no use for it at all. And last year, um, I'm I don't know if you heard about this, but they did a production at the Olney Theater Center in Maryland that was directed by uh, Marsha Milgram Dodge. And it featured um, a plus size queer black woman as Belle and an actor who um, walks with a peg leg. He lost his leg to cancer to play the beast. And all the clips that I saw from that production and everything I read about it suggested that maybe that turns Beauty and the Beast on its head um, to have these very non-typical actors playing these roles so I really and I think they're going to be bring it back again next December and I would really love to see it to see if it changes my idea of Beauty and the Beast because all the productions all the bootlegs that I watched of it to prepare for my class this summer um, I never saw it on Broadway and I just think it's horrible (laughs) Um, but that's why I really want to see this production because I think she's a brilliant director and um, these actors are fantastic and amazing, and I would love to see how they tell the story in their embodiment. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me of I really want to see this new Legally Blonde. Like, I hope this Legally Blonde really. I actually really love the revival, but not the revival. Sorry, I loved when it first came out. I saw it. Yeah, um, it's one of those. Next time I have to have you on and we'll talk all about movie musicals because that opens up a large can of worms. But I love (laughs) Legally Blonde. I think they did a good job Mm. with that musical. But I'm curious. I love, again, kind of going against type. I like what they're doing with these musicals. So, um, but yeah, the musical that I will let uh, collect a little dust is Cats. I uh, My goodness. See, that wouldn't even make it that doesn't even make it onto my mentionable. Although some of the music from Cats is pretty infectious. Yeah, there's the a music, few, a few numbers. No thanks, but I, I occasionally hear myself singing Mr. Mistopheles, Mr. Mistopheles. I really do. I have to confess that. Yeah, yeah. See, for me, Andrew Lloyd Webber, I love Sunset Boulevard. I think. I love, yeah. I think that was the, that was the one that hit it for me. And I. You know, Phantom, there's numbers I like, but again. I love Evita. Evita is, oh, I, yes. love, I love That's Evita cool. and I love Jesus Christ Superstar. Yes. I mean, there's so many musicals I love. I think that's why we're we're here right now. But again, there's something for everyone out there. I believe that. And Stacy, I can't wait to have you back again. So it sounds like you have something coming out. Anything else you want to, uh, you know, publicize here? This is your time if there's anything else you're working on i am working on well let's see what's going to come out soon i co-wrote with my dear friend and colleague deborah paredes an article about women duets on in 1950s and 60s television shows um Broadway performers who sang duets together, which now I can't remember because we wrote it so long ago. Um, But that's coming out in a book about musicals on TV. And um, an article actually that I co-wrote with a student, with one of my former students who graduated, 
about the musical Waitress and all female creative teams on Broadway is coming out in a book that's a new history of musical theater. So I have things coming out and then this Cinderella thing that we're still working on. So it's not out yet, but it will be in a book about Rodgers and Hammerstein, a new book about Rodgers and Hammerstein. Ooh, okay. Well, I'm going to have you back. We're going to talk about movie musicals it. and Rodgers and Hammerstein. Let's I do mean, it. Let's well, thank it. you, Stacy. Thank Thanks. you, Andrew, so much. It's really been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course, of course. And everyone out there, get your hands on Changed for Good, Beyond Broadway. Look up Stacy Wolf. She has an amazing Princeton account in our show notes. Everything is in our show notes. So just click all the links for Stacy. Okay. Thank you, Stacy. Um, thank you, now, Andrew. Let's put our favorite musical number on now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, bye everyone. Now, was that a Broadway musical encyclopedia type episode or what? I absolutely loved chatting with Stacy Wolf. Thank you, Stacy. And this is not the last Broadway musical discussion. I'll have Stacy back on the podcast. Uh, we have Jesse Green, the chief theater critic of the New York Times back here. He's going to be giving us some uh, Mary Rogers insider knowledge. So Rogers and uh, Hammerstein are back again in the conversation of some Once Upon a Mattress discussion. So look out for that in November um, because it's going to premiere around when uh, Once Upon a Mattress opened on Broadway. So you can all Google search that now if you want to figure out when the episode is coming out. Okay, so I want to let you all know we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. It's called the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. You get unedited videos. So you'll see my video with Stacy if you go on there right now. You join at $5 a month, which is less than an iced coffee in many coffee shops, especially in the Northeast. And you'll also get Mary's True Crime and Academia bonus episode. She has a full discussion about John Benet Ramsey, the Charles Lindbergh baby kidnapping, and so much more. Um, I have unedited videos up there. So even my discussion with Stacy, there's some things that, you know, I can't put in the full audio episode because it'll be too long. So you get all of that content. And look out soon. There's going to be a full video episode recapping and dissecting the Marilyn Monroe film Blonde, which is on Netflix. If you haven't seen it yet, watch it so you're ready for the episode. I'm going to release uh, part of it on our audio um, podcast, um, and then I will release the full episode as a video on Patreon. So again, get in early, patreon.com slash Room. Okay, also join... Or not join. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to our fall interns. They are so creative. I really love having you all on our um, podcast team. Thank you to Mary. Thank you to Kim. Bye, everyone out there. And here is from the 1997 Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cinderella. 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 There we go. Um, here is the end credits from the Brandy and Whitney Houston Cinderella. <laughs>